Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member E. Shoy shares his break from the traditional path not once, but twice already in his young career. We cover how he broke into the Blackstone Restructuring Group, which is one of the most prestigious groups on the street, coming out of Wharton, why he left only after 10 months to join a startup hedge fund, and what comes next with his own startup, Adam.Finance. All right, member E. Shoy, thank you so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It'd be great if you could give the listeners just a kind of short summary of your background. Sure. Um, so I went to Penn as an undergrad. I was in a program called the Hudson Program, which is a coordinated dual degree program between the college and Warden. At Warden, I studied um, finance and accounting. And in the college, I was an international studies major and actually uh, did, did a semester abroad in China, uh, in Beijing. And then for my sophomore year internship, I worked at a uh, small credit hedge fund. Okay. And then junior year, I worked in the restructuring group at Blackstone. Um, so I was there for that summer. And then I got a return offer and went back uh, after I graduated from Penn. So I was there actually for only eight months. I left. Um, to join a newly launched hedge fund um, that was started by one of the partners from Union Park called Governor's Lane. And I joined right before we launched uh, in uh, early 2015. We had around $700 million under management at that point before we launched. So I was involved in kind of the initial portfolio building and, and uh, kind of the stock selection for, uh, you know, the launch. And then I was there for a bit over three years. Mm-hmm. Um, until early last year when I left to you know, do something else. And I uh, started a um, fintech startup called Adam Finance, which is now what uh, I run and I've been doing day to day since then. Awesome. Pretty interesting background. So let's go back all the way to kind of your time at Wharton and specifically, you know, when you went in there, were you like, for sure, you knew you wanted to go banking, like, and kind of what what kind of pushed you in that direction? Was it more like, hey, I'm gonna, I would, didn't know what I wanted to do, and I kind of just followed the herd, or was it something where like you've known for a long time you wanted to do finance? Yeah, so even in high school, I was always super interested in uh, economics. It was like always a passion of mine, I, especially like when I was in high school, like graduating in 2010. So financial crisis was like you know sophomore junior. I remember like reading a lot about it and I was super you know curious, and I'd always been fascinated by. Um, you know, businesses and, and stocks. And actually, my uncle had been in the industry for a long time. So that's partly why I think I was initially inspired to, um, you know, learn more. And mm-hmm. so as I got more curious about 
you know, learning about stocks and businesses and economics, I, I thought that, you know, it could be interesting to go to an undergraduate business school or to do economics somewhere. So I think, I think that's always an interesting, like, decision to make if you're interested in kind of doing a career in finance. You obviously can just do a, uh, you know, a great, you know, go to a great liberal arts school, be a liberal arts major, and I, I don't think it in any way precludes and may, in fact, in some ways it may be better to do that. But I think it just really depends on, like, what, are you saying you know, that because I are? are you saying that because I went to Williams College? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually forget. I didn't realize that. Yeah, uh, yeah no. But uh, part of, part of the reason, frankly, for myself was I, I went to a high school called uh, Lawrence School, which is a small, well, not small, but it's a it's a boarding school. And frankly, the the experience there is very um, you know NASCAC or uh, liberal arts school esque. So it's kind of like I don't want to do this you know for round two. So that's definitely what drove me to a bigger kind of research uh, university. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think there, there's advantages and disadvantages of, of you know, both doing liberal arts versus uh, undergraduate business. I think it also depends on what kind of, uh, you know, peers you want to surround yourself with if you want, you know, your peers to have a particular industry focus. And, and definitely Penn, as I'm sure a lot of people know, has a super pre-professional vibe. And that's actually something that I liked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I liked the fact that it was very, you know, practical oriented. So I, I knew I probably wanted to go to an undergraduate business school and, um, I applied to the Huntsman program just because I thought it was a you know, kind of interesting layer on top of instead of just being well, it's, a, a it's the best student, school. I thought it's, it was a good opportunity. It's the best school, too. Come on, let's be honest. Especially for... <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, well, yeah, they'll, they'll say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, definitely great. I mean, the, 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 well, I'm biased. I got, I got my MBA from Morton, so of course I'm biased. But um, All right, exactly. You're, yeah. you're biased. But what, actually, what's interesting is that there's definitely been a shift in the school, I would say, over the last for sure over the last 10 years from definitely post-financial crisis where I think less, if you look at like the career stats, a lot less people are going to banking consulting. Right. Still like a large majority, but it's less. Yeah. And actually there's, there's a quite a large scene now of people going into major tech companies and, and doing startups. And the school has actually kind of shifted and expanded curriculum offerings from, you know, traditional finance accounting actually into like the stats department's very good. The marketing department's very good. Um, oh, yeah. So there's a lot of other kind of, um, data-driven thing, you know, curriculums that the school has kind of laid out, which are not just pure traditional, you know, do finance and accounting and go into investment banking. Although Warden's still very good at that, obviously. For sure. No, it's funny you mentioned Lawrenceville. I went to Andover, and my my mother just actually retired from um, being head of school at Deerfield. So ah, small that's, world. That's funny. I, I I did not get into Deerfield, but I, I definitely visited. <laughs> I wouldn't have if I had applied. So, <laughs> 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 anyways, so. Um, Okay, great. So small world, but anyways, you're you're, so you you get you get to Penn. You're you're studying. You know, you go to China for a year. It sounds like. Uh, I was a half year actually. A half year, so a semester, year. yeah. And so, um, tell me a little bit about that. That's that's interesting. And what did you, what if anything did that do for you in terms of like perspective? I mean, would you recommend it to other people? Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I think studying abroad is like super um, fascinating. I, I think there, you know, there's a couple of ways to do it. One is to do a summer program somewhere for a few weeks. I think that's interesting, but it's definitely not the same as taking a full semester and actually living somewhere. You, you know, you just get a lot uh, different of an experience. Right. If you are proficient in the language, I think it's very fascinating to actually go somewhere for a full semester and then just enroll like a local student, which is kind of what I what I did. Right. So I was just in like, you know, classes with other kids at uh, the university I was at, it's called Tsinghua in Beijing, but basically I was just another student there and the classes were all in Chinese. So I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a, 
extremely difficult to like study economics in, in, in Chinese. Um, <laughs> so that was definitely challenging. And but I think the more interesting part is just the cultural living experience, especially if it's a very different type of country. You learn a lot about like you know the way like society is organized, like what people actually care about, the way like business is conducted. And I think you know I'm not obviously you know working on a major you know conglomerate and uh, with a you know a large uh, China business, and I'm not doing that. But I think. Certainly, if like anyone has an interest in being an exact at a major Fortune 500 with like you know potential to like work in a place like China, like it's pretty important to have spent like a good amount of time there because otherwise, I think it's just very hard to understand how to do business in some of these countries that are quite different from the U.S. Not for sure. That's fair. I've heard of that from a lot of guests, um, both people who are you know born and raised there and the people who've kind of been transplants there, and it's it's tough if you don't have at least a ton of many years of experience there, let alone a semester abroad, yeah. probably wouldn't be enough. But anyway, so, no, exactly. so yeah. you're, you're at Wharton, you're doing, um, you're doing well, I assume. And then you start kind of gravitating towards the whole kind of banking recruiting cycle. It sounds like, because so, you, you were interested in any, anyways. And obviously there's a ton of um, students at Wharton that are kind of gunning for those. Can you tell me a little bit about the, mm-hmm. how competitive, competitive it was, um, what that culture was like and, you know, was there any stress around that? And specifically, did people help each other? And what was that whole mm-hmm. kind of recruiting process like on campus? Yes, it's pretty interesting. So I, I had a pretty good cohort of friends who were all like, you know, very interested in, in working in finance jobs, whether mm-hmm. that was at funds or, or uh, in banking. And actually people, you know, I think Warren has this negative reputation about that. It's like super cutthroat. And I remember the the one analogy someone had once told me was like, oh, you know, people will like rip out pages in the books, you know, so people, other people can't study or whatever made up nonsense there is. Um, it's definitely absolutely not true. I mean, you know, the the reality is the, that all of the classes in the core curriculum are graded on a very strict curve. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually think that's great because I think, frankly, it teaches you that, you know, no matter how smart you think you are, it's irrelevant because a lot of the core classes, though, like it's not like it, you know, you're not studying linear algebra, it's, you know, accounting 101. Right. Because of the fact that there's a core and there's a lot of smart kids, you really have to grind hard and, like, really study. And if you do not study, you will absolutely not do well. So I think that lesson in and of itself, and, you know, we can talk about the lessons I think that banking teaches, that's definitely one of them, I think is just a valuable life skill to understand that, like, you can't just rest on the fact that you think you're super smart because there's a bunch of other super smart people who may work harder than you, and then you're not going to be a good place. Um, right. So... You know, so, but in, in that context, you know, I think I had a very supportive group uh, of friends and, you know, people were definitely, um, you know, open to, you know, help each other out and, you know, doing mock interviews. There's definitely a big culture at, at, at Warden of um, doing mock interviews with seniors who have already gone through recruiting and, you know, they're willing to help you and, and kind of walk you through what, uh, what, what you should expect in that process. That's great. Uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely... Look, the reality is like it's, it's obviously definitely stressful. It happens quite quickly. I, I have no idea at this point when that recruiting. I, last I heard, it, was, it used to be in the spring, or it used to be like right after. Um, I guess you got back um, second semester, so this is maybe not spring. So this is like maybe Jan or Feb. Yeah. But now I heard it's <laughs> it's actually in the fall. Apparently, I don't even know anymore. So it's like it keeps moving up, uh, which is pretty crazy to me. Oh yeah, every but, year it's like yeah. earlier and earlier. It's like private equity recruiting too. It keeps coming up like up one or two months every single year to the point where now people when they get their banking job and within like a few probably this year it'll be the next couple of months <laughs> they're gonna, they're yeah, gonna, for a job two years out almost you know for a job two years out yeah 
no, it, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. And obviously, like the the actual re- recruiting process is, is quite short. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think. There's yeah, like can you tell me about like how many resume of- drops you did and then how many interviews you got, offers, stuff like that? Can you give me some stats around that? Yeah, let me. I'll try to remember. So I definitely dropped the resume like literally everywhere because it's like yeah. why not? <laughs> it's a free call option. Um, so I don't know, I'll, I'll make up a number, but it's probably like 40 or 50 is my guess. Yep. I assume that if I were at Warren now, the number would likely be higher because there's probably even more, even more, uh, jobs with a lot of five-side firms recruiting. Yep. Um, so I did that. I probably had like, I want to say probably like 10 or 12, maybe 14, uh, on campus first round, something, something in that so around a 20, 30%, like, 20, 30% conversion on those drops. Not bad. Yeah, something like that. That's like, I mean, yeah, I had, I had a pretty good resume just for the fact that, like, my GPA was, was good. Um, like 3.8 or 4? Yeah, yeah, I did 3.8, yeah, like 3.85 okay. or something like that at the time. Yep. Um, that was before before my China grades came in, which weren't, weren't great. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, you were taking classes in Mandarin, so that's fair. But keep going. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, uh, and, and yeah, I was a finance accounting major, and I had done... Um, Concentrator, I should say, and I had done a few finance-related internships. I actually worked. One of my closest friends' dad uh, worked at uh, this uh, Long Only Fund, which is pretty well known called Tazina. So I actually had interned there. Um, okay. So, yeah, year internships. so that was like okay. a lucky, just you know, obviously family connection, which helped. But so I, I had like a decent background in the space. Like had had some earlier internships, and I like I had a clear, you know, people just talked to me. Like I had a clear cut passion for finance, and I think the 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 one interesting thing is if you actually are interested in the industry um, and you actually care about investing, you can definitely differentiate yourself. And the reason is that there's a lot of people who are just obviously at Warden and just trying to do it just because they think it's an attractive, uh, you know, from a financial perspective, an attractive career opportunity. Mm-hmm. So if you actually do enjoy it, like you should make that very clear in interviews and it just kind of comes out naturally. Um, and that's definitely like a, a large uh you know, competitive edge. So you had um, so one sec. So you had that hedge fund uh, internship senior high school, but then what did you do for freshman summer and sophomore summer? So yeah, so no, no. So senior year, I worked at uh, Casino, which was uh, basically like a mutual fund, yep. um, along only investment manager. And then yeah, the hedge fund was sophomore year. Freshman okay. year, I actually didn't do an internship, if I remember correctly. Okay. I think I did. I think I did a summer. Oh, actually, I took classes at Penn. That's okay. what it was. Okay. Um, I took an, a few extra classes just to kind of because uh, I had a very tight schedule, so just to kind of relieve that. Nice. Um, okay. So you kind well, of had that internship sophomore year. So that was a that was a good internship having the resume going into summer analyst recruiting. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, in my guess is it's only gotten worse. So I think it's probably very helpful mm-hmm. to have some sort of relevant internship experience, if possible, sophomore year. Um, it doesn't even have, it does not have to be, I got a fancy firm. It doesn't have to be a a big fund. You know, it could be, it could be anything related to finance. That's what I tell people, like anything at all related to finance. (laughs) Like if you can get into a bank, even if it's a tiny regional bank, that's fine. Just get, try to get in somewhere. Exactly. I think people are still too focused on like the prestige of the place or whatever. And like, like I worked at some funds, like there's a bazillion funds, like no one cares. No one knows any of these places, but what's important is that it shows that, you know, you're kind of dedicated to uh to the craft and that you actually you know care and you put them put in the time so and so summer analyst recruit summer analyst recruiting did they give you any uh flack for it being a hedge fund and not a bank or for working at a fund in the side no well so i think i we could talk about that later after my junior year internship there was people questioned whether i wanted to 
uh, work at a fund. And that was actually correct. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, as a recruiter, I'd be like, he's a flight risk. He's a flight risk. Correct, yeah. uh, which was true. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't think anyone, like not, not at that, definitely not for uh, junior recruiting. No one cares. Okay. Um, really, I think it's just important to show, yep. show interest. Okay. Um, Cool. So yeah, so the, the way the way it worked is so yeah at, at Penn at least um, yeah you have first round first round interviews on campus um, those are like pretty short if I remember correctly I want to say like half hour you yep. like slot in people back to back all day and you do that you mostly run fit four, mostly technicals you know. or kind of a combo yeah it's a mix it's like usually something like you know ten minutes of fit and maybe fifteen minutes of you know basic basic technicals and. Again, I'm maybe a little still on this, but it used to be like, you know, walk me through an income statement or, you yeah. know, if I add $10 of depreciation to, yeah, the know, basics. think of the statement, basics. how does that, yeah, exactly, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, if it was, if there were some of the better, um, you know, the, the, I'd say the, the higher quality um, boutique investment banks, they're usually a little, the questions are a little more thoughtful. Um, and, you know, it might be something like, you know, two businesses have, uh, you know, a, you know, one business has no leverage and one business has a moderate amount of leverage. Like, which one should trade at a higher EBITDA multiple, or you know, things like that, mm-hmm. which actually require you to understand like the value of interest tax yield or whatever, like a little theoretical understanding. Right. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, if at less like at liberal arts schools, if if they're a little less technical, my guess is they are. But at Warren, especially, the expectation is that, especially if you've taken those classes, that <laughs> you know to answer those questions. Otherwise, that's a real problem. So yeah. if you have taken relevant coursework, you should definitely, you know, be ready just for that. brushing up and, and knowing the answer to those sorts of questions. Yeah, back when I was at uh, Williams, like what, almost 20 years ago, recruiting, not 20, but close now, there was like no <laughs> technicals or very few until like the final round. But even the final round, they would kind of test to see what you knew. And for me, it was very little right. at the time because, you know, it just wasn't needed. You could kind of just be like, oh, I don't know. Right. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. From definitely, if you're at an undergraduate business school, like you should, you should ex- yeah, you're expected. Be those sorts of questions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, continue. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, and so uh, yeah, so it's you know those are pretty short, and I think you basically run around doing that for you know maybe call it a week, week and a half, and mm-hmm. then um, generally the banks will have super days, which were you know meeting kind of three to five people. Uh, maybe six. In, were those you know, on campus like back, back in 2013? I think it was or 14. Was it was it on campus or was it actually in the office? Did you have to go to New York? Yeah, so it was in the offices. I don't know if they've since changed that. Yeah, so it was. I remember I had super days that I think it was Morgan Stanley and obviously Blackstone and maybe one other place. Maybe it was Evercore. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and then I had uh, one hedge fund. But yeah, those were all. Um, those were all. Um, at the firm's offices, so you have to you have to go to New York, um, and then you know different firms are I guess different about you know how they do that, but it, they were definitely um, a mix of again very similar like mix of fit and technicals, and some people were nicer than others, and you know some people were very mean and just asked you crazy technical <laughs> questions. Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> Good cop, bad cop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've or just bad cop, bad cop. Two people just attacking well, uh, you and be like, you think you're so smart, kid. Let me ask you these 20 technical questions in a row. Anyways. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, one one thing that definitely helps that I would recommend people is to try to actually talk to people who are first or second year analysts in those groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the luxury of knowing a bunch of people in, in the reception group at Blackstone just because there were a lot of um, 
former uh, or uh, I should say warden alums there mm-hmm. that I kind of who are you know one or two year old older than me, so I knew them and I could talk about oh like the group is so great and this is why or this is what you know I, I find interesting about the industry or the job. So it's good to do that if, if you have the ability to do so because then it makes it you know more it shows intent more and that you're not just trying to like shop for offers and that you know the, you view all of the investment banks as a commodity, which right. may or may not be true, but you obviously don't want to express that when you're interviewing. For yeah, a it's, basically you're saying it's easier to convince the the recruiters that you're serious about Blackstone restructuring when you say, I've spoken to A, you know, a B, and C within the group, exactly. and you're really exciting because of these deals you've done, and da-da-da, and I find that type of work interesting. So, okay, was it true, or did you have, was that the only offer you ended up getting? Did you get Morgan Stanley, Evercore? What was the kind of final tally? I... I, I forget. so I got the, the if I remember correctly I got the Blackstone offer I think before the other ones mm-hmm. um, and I was just gonna I knew I was gonna take that okay. um, so I ended up yeah so I just ended up taking that I think before I got I just told the other firms got it um, okay so that yeah so I mean I knew basically there was there was a hedge fund I was interviewing at um, which I was considering which actually a very close friend of mine ended up working at um, mm-hmm. which does a distressed back that I was thinking of working at but I, I just felt that. My view at the time was that um, whether or not I wanted to do hedge fund recruiting, and this in 2013 there wasn't a, it was still very early. Like there wasn't a lot of buy third firms that recruited that. I learned there were a few, mm-hmm. um, a few big hedge funds, and then PE had started to recruit more. I think so. Silver Lake had recruited Aries, um, Blackstone, maybe KKR and yep. TPG, but yep. like small, like maybe two seats, like very small quantity. Wait, do you think those were so, the most competitive seats to get into? Again. Do you think those were the most competitive to get into, specifically at Warden, where people yeah, like jump so. in? Yeah, I think Yeah, I'd assume yeah, trying say, to skip banking. That, a lot of sorry. people were tr- a lot of people trying to skip banking, right, and just go straight into PE, and it get pretty. Yeah, at, yeah. At the time, it wasn't done like as much as I think, um, mm-hmm. as much as it is now. Um, but it was definitely, yeah, I would say those were definitely viewed as some of the most prestigious jobs. I think in banking, the like Blackstone restructuring was viewed as probably the most prestigious job, and yeah that there was a you know i think people people had gotten offers from both black and and restructuring and and you know chosen different routes and, and right. hedge funds so it was all you know they were they're all good I, I think my frame of reference was essentially that regardless of what i wanted to do for full-time recruiting it, it wouldn't it would give me maybe slightly more optionality um if i did a banking internship junior year because then you That's know it's fair. always hard to basically <laughs> intern at a Head fund and then yeah, go back. Let's say you do get a return. Yeah, exactly. Or if you don't get a return, then you're you know not in a good spot because then they're like, well, why did you work at a hedge fund? Why aren't you just gonna work, you know leave early or whatever? Right. Um. So that that's always a delicate. So if you do you know if you do go intern at a hedge fund or a PE firm, you should definitely get a return offer, <laughs> ideally, and uh, you know know that you wanna you likely want to do that because otherwise it's a little bit you can do it, but it's just a little bit tougher to thread the needle on it and and to explain that. So tell me about like specifically um, restruct- the restructuring group at Blackstone. Was it specifically something where you know you knew going into recruiting that was the group you were recruiting for, or how did that work out in terms of, you know, the groups? Yeah, I, 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 that was really the other that and P were really the two groups that I was interested in, um, and Blackstone restructuring really was the main one. But is that something you um, said found- like going up front, or something where like it was a different whole recruiting path, like whole recruiting channel? No, the the first the first rounds were, I think, not. Especially a good question. 
I think actually, yes, they were all, all the groups interviewed even first rounds, I think separately. So if you wanted to interview for PE and restructuring, you had two first rounds and then two super days. Got it. Um, and they yeah. kind of ran in a totally separate processes. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly. So, no, I, I, I always, um, it's interesting. I, I had read like a, a book on like distress. There's this famous book by uh, Stephen Moyer called Distress Debt Analysis. Yep. And I'd like read that when I, say again? Yeah, yeah. No, I've heard of it. I was at, I was in the uh, restructuring oh, yeah. group at Rothschild. I don't know if you knew for two years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know the group. <laughs> yeah, go but, ahead. Um, yeah. No, so I'd read the book. I was like, oh, this is really like, I had always kind of been fascinated by law and I knew I didn't want to really become a lawyer. Right. But, you know, the interesting thing about restructuring and investing in distress debt is it kind of combines, you know, business analysis um, and, you know, legal work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, it's, it's both size of pie and distribution of pie. Um, so it's actually an interesting kind of uh, thing to, to study. And it's kind of cool to, you know, be able to, for, you know, some extent of time to go through contracts and be able to, you know, kind of think from a legal perspective and all that stuff. So that was just a kind of a more interesting banking experience than a traditional, uh, you know, investment banking group. Yep. And I thought it would be, you know, just kind of more intellectually stimulating, which was, it was true to an extent. Um, but that was, yeah, so that was kind of why I, I thought that would be, you know, the ideal group so from you, my perspective. So you so get there, you, yeah. you land an offer, it's kind of the most prestigious group or one of the most prestigious groups on on wall street it's incredibly tough to get into you get there and then you know you're out within 10 months right so what happened tell me about like were you working on some live deals what was the thought process i'd love to hear about specifically um was it something where you were proactively looking to get out after say six seven months or was it something that kind of just serendipitously fell into your lap with the governor's lane position yeah, so I so yeah, I did the internship. It was good. It was you know, internships are always short and it's always a honeymoon. Yeah. So got luckily enough to get the return offer, and I I knew that I I just wasn't gonna like recruit at. I felt that basic. My view was basically that a you know working there full time and doing like the proper full hedge fund recruiting process, um, you know, eight months in or whatever it was at the time would give me more kind of fund options and potentially better funds and also uh, new startup funds. And that was not an option uh, direct from undergrad, whereas there were only a few major hedge funds that recruited. And so I basically felt that, hey, look, if you're, if you're going to go right out undergrad and work on one of these big funds, like you kind of have to stay there for at least three, four, five years before you transition to somewhere else mm-hmm. versus like doing, you know, at the time, the presumption was two years at Blackstone. And then I would have, you know, during that recruiting process, a lot more uh, optionality. So that's why I did it. Um, I, you know, was on a few... There's a few live deals. I had one like debtor side bankruptcy deal with a, a shipping company that I worked on, which was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, shipping, for those who don't know, is by far the worst industry of all time. <laughs> Never invest in anything related to shipping. Uh, everyone's been betting on the recovery of the shipping of uh, dry bulk or whatever for the last like, 10 years from the, since the financial crisis. And these companies just go bankrupt every two years again. Oh um, well, it's like airlines and it's like uh, paper and packaging was what was a structure I worked on. True. <laughs> but airlines exactly. seem to have been doing better for ha- have had a nice long run now, but we'll see. Exactly. Anyways. Yeah, but uh, well, that's the, the one, uh, in, in all seriousness, the one, um, I think the one, the, a huge ding on working in a restructuring group, I think is that obviously as, not the surprise that you tend to see very low quality businesses mm-hmm. um, in very cyclical industries. Mm-hmm. And so the sad thing is that you don't get to really appreciate, I think, business quality and understand like how to think about 
the real quality and long-term earnings power of a business, which I think if you want to become an investor is like much more important to understand than like all this complicated valuation stuff. Cause in the end of the day, like I think the greatest investors really have a firm understanding of like, you know, long-term earnings power of businesses and, and business quality. And that's definitely not something that you're going to pick up in a restructuring group. Um, however, there, you know, there's, there's other advantages and, and it's not clear to me that obviously you're picking that up in some banking group at a bull bracket. So, Got uh, it. you know, there's a debate to be had there, but in any case, um, I, you know, I was on an interesting better side deal. I learned a bit about, I think, you know, banking is banking and, you know, it involves a lot of, uh, client service work, which is just inevitable, the same in consulting. And so that was never something that appealed to me. I don't have an interest in like closing deals or, or, you know, servicing, uh, clients in, in that way. And so I always used to get frustrated when we had to like change a deck for, you know, to please the, the company or, you know, to do a deck for, you know, something that I thought was just kind of a waste of time or, and, you know, just yeah, sort of at two in mind. the mor- uh, two in the morning or three in the morning, getting called back into the office yeah. to turn the deck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, luckily I think when, when I was there, our hours were pretty good because uh, actually this was before oil went down a lot. So there wasn't all these, uh, uh mm. oil and gas, uh, <laughs> bankruptcy deals. So it's actually pretty quiet, but, um, you know, I think the, the issue is that, um, your hours were like 80 or 70 hours a week or what would you say? Yeah, it was like, it was probably like 65 to 70, frankly. So no, that's really good. Yeah. That's pretty good um, for banking. Yeah, it was, I was lucky. It definitely picked up, uh, uh, after I left. But, um, no, I think, I think what the issue is ultimately like, and this is totally separate conversation, but to some extent, I think a lot of the, you know, the banking industry, like other industries that, you know, are trying to justify their, um, you know, retention fees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the result of that ends up being that they need to they feel the need to produce output, and then that output tends to come in the form of conference calls and slide production. And right. you know, slide production is not necessarily linked to quality of job well done. And so that's just it's just a classic like example of like you know just different incentives. And obviously the you need the to produce you need to produce yeah you need to produce work product because you're collecting a, some sort of retainer every month in these terms of rest- exactly. restructuring deals. So you can't just like, if you're collecting a couple hundred thousand dollars every month, you can't just sit there and like <laughs> not produce something. No, exactly. Yeah. And Got so it. that obviously that work filters down. And so ultimately it's some analyst who's like banging out, you know, slides at 2 a.m. for some deck that is generally pretty useless. Um, and that's just, but that's just the like nature. There's just, that is what it is. What um, type of stuff would you be doing there? Like what type of analyses like you're doing, like different, um, different, uh, so yeah, deck capacity like, scenarios, projections, upside exactly. downside cases. Looking yeah. So at like tra- traditional, like, you know, projections on like, you know, for, so for the, the shipping company was, okay, you know, let's assume that dry bulk rates go up like this. What does that mean for the earnings power of the business? What does that mean for, Right. Um, the different tranches of debt, you know, what does that mean for recoveries? And then right. based on, you know, these different scenarios, like how do we decide to equitize certain pieces of the capital structure or, you know, carve up the, the pro forma ownership of the business or, you know, whatever. And then there's all these um, other uh, kind of corporate, um, and for those who haven't worked in restructuring, it's not as relevant, but basically like, you know, a company is not just a company, it's a bunch of legal entities. So obviously there's, there's implications for when debt sits at different legal entities. So mm-hmm. a lot of work around, you know, waterfalls and related. Um, I'm curious, um, I'm yeah. curious about your time there. Were, were you as an analyst brought into any like meetings, actual negotiations with, with say the bondholders that you were negotiating against? So on the debtor side? Yeah, it was. Yep. Yeah, it was actually. Um, and actually I said, yeah, the, the, that, the researching group is Blackstone. There's, 
say the best thing about it was that there there's there was a, uh, a lot of exposure given to you know first year analysts and like actually like a lot of responsibility so for example the you know the the projections i did and the waterfall analyses were actually and this is true for any um you know, restructuring advisor on the debtor side, you know, they were in the disclosure statement, which is like the official, you know, document that the bankruptcy court uses to give to um, all interested parties to, you know, kind of evaluate um, the case. So that's pretty cool. Um, and obviously, like, you don't want to have, uh, you know, errors in your model when that's showing up in a court document forever. Um, so that that's pretty interesting. And I was definitely like allowed to be in a lot of, the, in, you know, of the actual negotiations and those sorts of meetings. So that that was definitely uh, a nice, nice part about the job. So what was the impetus to kind of to jump and how did that happen? How did that even come about? So the, you know, the, the typical hedge fund um, slash P buy side recruiting process kicked off. I think it was you know, seven or eight months uh, in, into the job. And, you know, I always knew I wanted to work at a fund. And so I was just kind of looking at, you know, what the, what the different opportunities were in, in uh, the hedge fund space. And I think, one of the one of the views I had at the time, which I think is now kind of slightly more obvious, um, was that you know the <laughs> I mean, it's a whole again other conversation, but you know the, the hedge fund industry in many respects like has not performed, uh, you know has not justified its its fees like it's pretty obvious, and so um, I think a lot of very very large funds, especially uh, excluding the multi managers, you know just were you know, kind of unsustainable in the sense that they were running, you know, $10 billion charging two and 20 and then producing like pretty subpar returns. Mm-hmm. So I felt that at the time, like it didn't really make sense to other than for, you know, some very famous and select um, large funds. Like it, it, I didn't really want to work at a large fund because I felt that actually the, frankly, the, the career risk reward of doing that didn't really make any sense. And actually, you know, people felt that, you know, this is like a fancy brand. It's been around for a while, but actually like, because the, their returns weren't great in the, the fees they charged where I was like, this is just an, un, like, just like you would look at any other business. I was like, this is an unsustainable business. And it's so like taking time. Bomb. I actually, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And then yeah. it, the other component is that just like any big bank or whatever, if you're you know, the larger, the fund generally, like, you know, you're, you're more junior and you have less uh, actually discretion for what, um, you know, companies you get the research and for what, um, and for how you basically allocate your time and you end up being more of a, I don't use the phrase model monkey, but, but that's kind of true. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of go to a smaller fund that I thought I, I had a lot of personal kind of career upside and that I was, um, you know, that I felt I fit well with the team and kind of the mission. So your, your so entrepreneurial, looking, your entrepreneurial chops were kind of show, or were showing themselves early on. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess to some extent, I mean, I, was, yeah. I, I, I would be lying if I say I wasn't, I was very like risk on yeah. and I basically felt that ultimately like, you know, I thought I was, you know, I knew, um, how to, or I would be a good investor over time. And so I was like, okay, well, if I have that view and I believe in, you know, I have conviction in my own ability, then whatever, like I'm going to take, uh, you, you know, should, very young. No, I mean, you should, you're young. Team. Yeah. It's a perfect time to do it. You're young. It's, you have nothing tying you down. You lose your job. It's not the end exactly. of the world. Like who cares? You might as well swing for the fences when you're young. So, um, I love it. I think it's, I think it was the right decision. So, I don't know why so many people get so enamored with the big names and then, you know, they, they may pass up on an opportunity that has so much more upside. Um, yeah, anyways, I think, I think yeah. people, I think people really struggle to divorce brand prestige from personal career risk reward. Um, and I think, yeah, they get enamored with the brand. And it's like, okay, great. It's a good brand, but like, you're not gonna, 
you know, you can't like eat that at the end of the day. So it only does so much for you. And I, you know, I definitely think it, it's important to focus on, um, you know, just kind of where, like what your personal like outcomes look like in different scenarios. And like, it does that, like, you know, which place makes, you know, ma- makes sense. And also like, where do you just like the people? Yeah. Like quite simply, like, do you, you know, do you like the team? Do you believe in the mission? Uh, Cause ultimately you have to show up every day at work. And so if you don't, the second you stop believing the mission and you don't like the team anymore, it's going to be really hard to be successful. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think just to comment on brand, you were in kind of a, a little bit of a different situation than a lot of the listeners here. You went to Wharton and Blackstone, so you kind of had the brand and the stamp of prestige already on your resume. Yeah. So you had a little bit of a yeah. The, yeah. Go yeah I was just gonna say I, so that's a that's a very fair point. Um, yeah. I was in a position to do that. So what I would say is for people who aren't in that position, it's the the whole purpose of brand, in my opinion, is it's just a career hedge, right? It's just a stamp, and it allows you to, you know, if you. If you go do something and you know you're not successful and you know you get fired or whatever it is, you can always point to that. And I think it's the same reason that a lot of people who, um, you know, a lot of people get an MBA for a lot of the same reasons. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's not, you know, I think that's actually, you know, a potentially a good decision, especially if it allows you to take more career risk later. But I wouldn't, I don't think that it's a smart idea. And I've seen a lot of people from very, very good schools do this. You know, do two years at this place and then two years at this fancy P fund and then two years at MBA and then two years at this other fancy. And like they're basically hopping around two years everywhere, collecting fancy brand names, but never actually building a real career or doing something real and staying at a place mm. for an extended period of time. I think that's a huge, huge mistake. Um, but I think a lot of people do it because they just get enamored with, uh, you know, it's like shopping at the mall and, you know, buying a coach bag and then Hermes bag. And <laughs> it's like, you know, at some point, like you don't need all of them. Just get one. Yeah. And it's fine. Yep. Yeah. It's, you're, it's diminishing marginal returns of each additional brand. <laughs> it's like exactly. it's like resume builders, right? They're like, what would make the the best actual like branded resume? Yeah, at, right. at, at a certain point, it's yeah. really diminishing returns. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Look, it makes sense. Like, if the first place you work that is not a you know, uh, you know, a super known place, and you have the opportunity to work somewhere that's a bit more known for a bit, like that can make sense if it allows you to be, I think, a little more aggressive with your career as a next step. That's a great potential mm-hmm. decision. But yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't just run around collecting brands. Great. Okay, so you're you're at uh, Governor's Lane, and you're you're kind of start. It's it's a new fund. You said about 700 uh, AUM, and you're kind of tasked. It sounds like you had some pretty big responsibility as a new analyst. You were helping kind of um, with the initial kind of portfolio construction. Yeah, it was it was pretty. It was really awesome because it was uh, you know it was like a startup. We were like. Uh, how many people? Um, yeah, how many people did we like, bring in? So when I joined, we were like four investment professionals, including the the founder, and we had like a CFO and a GC, and then mm-hmm. we added uh, ultimately a few more um, two. I want to say two more investment professionals pretty quickly after we launched, and then we added a few more over time. Yep. It was a very you know very small team, super lean, mm-hmm. um, you know small office. Um, and it was exciting because, you know, we were starting a, starting a new fund and, you know, the, the reality is, especially in uh, hedge fund land, is that no matter how long your LPs say that their time horizon is, <laughs> the first six months and one year and two years of returns are super, super important. Right. And if you have a bad first six months or first year, first two years, it makes it really, really hard uh, to be successful. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of puts the fund in, in, in a, in in a, a tough spot, yeah. um, especially... Uh, for those who don't know this, the, the way fund economics work is that, uh, you know, there's a 
there used to be a 2% management fee, more like probably one and change now. But the 20% carry or whatever it is, um, if you're, you know, if you, if you're down over a time interval and you're below your high watermark, you don't get any performance fee. So what ends up happening is that people get paid less, so they're less happy. And then also, um, it, the, the result of that is it does incentivize in certain situations, you know, people to be very risk on to kind of get back to the high watermark. So it's just not, it's just not a place that you want any, especially a new fund to be in. So you really have to like really try to, to produce good returns for the first. Yeah. For the listeners who are not as aware. So basically what's happening is this, the clock's ticking once you have that LP commitment and you basically have to return over a certain threshold, a certain return. Right. And then if, if, if you're, let's say you have a bad couple six months, it just puts you way behind. And so, so we didn't actually have a, we actually didn't have a, yeah, that's, that's like a hurdle. We actually oh, didn't, didn't have that. Okay, uh, great. Kind of absolute, but, but uh, some funds, uh, that's more typical now. And yeah, so that's even worse. If you have yeah, like a, it's ticking. Uh, yeah. yeah, 7% annual hurdle. Yeah. Then yep. that's not, yeah, if you have a 7% annual hurdle and then your, your first year you're down 10%, you know, you could do the math. Like you have to, it's a very good uh, year the next year to, to get back there. So just to even get to, to um, a chance to have any carry. Exactly. Yeah. So, in any case, it, it does create a lot of pressure and like kind of it's, it's not the right sort of pressure because you should really be thinking about, you know, investments over, you know, several time, year time horizon. And I honestly, ideally, <laughs> you know, like you're a permanent uh, owner of the business. But right. in so any case, were, was this long short? Or what t- can you tell me about the type of um, investments you guys were making? Was it distress? Was it credit equities? Yeah, so we, we were in a venture of fund, uh, mostly at the time we were doing just kind of long, long short, mm-hmm. um, not actually as much individual single name shorting, mostly kind of index hedging, and then just kind of, you know, traditional just longs that were usually like position size of anywhere from like, you know, 3% of the portfolio to like 7 uh-huh. um, was pretty typical. Okay. But not like, con- you know, reasonably concentrated, but not super concentrated. Um, and... Yeah, we didn't do much. There wasn't much credit going on at the time. There wasn't really any yep. uh, distress credit at the point. So, okay. uh, so yeah, so we we luckily had um, a first a good, you know, a few 2015, not 2015 actually, but 2016, 2017, we did quite well. 2016 was actually a tough year, if I remember correctly, for hedge funds. Um, but luckily we had a good, very, very good 16 and, and a pretty good 17. So that actually put the, the fund in a nice place. And, um, I, you know, the fund ended up growing to, you know, north of 2 billion at one, um, I believe. Okay. So, you know, that was, that, that, you know, that was good obviously. And, and then the team grew and we got a bigger office. And so that was, uh, yeah, it was like, so nice to see, uh, you know, business grow. It was exciting. So what do you think made you guys successful there? Was it just the, the actual research process? Was it, you know, all the, f- the fundamental that where you're, I, it sounds like your hold periods were longer than, you guys weren't doing any, you know, high frequency stuff. It was just all mostly just uh, actual fundamental research. Yeah, no, it, it's just a, a traditional kind of fundamentally oriented. Yeah, event driven. And yeah, so I think we, we had a few good investments and, and they were sized properly and that kind of, you know, that, that worked. And, you know, I, I, was, I wouldn't say it's, again, I, I, I wouldn't judge any, any fund over like a two year time horizon. Yeah, when I don't think that means anything. It's, easily explainable by luck or skill or both or neither. Yeah. Um, so, but, but yeah, it was, it was a good outcome. And then, you know, I think, I think, I think the thing that, you know, ultimately, um, kind of made me kind of want to do something else, uh, kind of probably starting in, you know, the, the back half of 17 was, I always just liked investing. And then one of the things that happens is as any fund grows, um, 
you know, this is true if you look at returns across different hedge fund sizes. It, it's much harder to deliver good returns when you're a $10 billion fund versus when you're a $1 billion fund because you can just do the math. If you are running a $10 billion fund and, you know, your average position size is 10%, you need to put a billion dollars in a given position. There's not many companies that you can actually buy a billion dollars worth of stock and not own like an insane amount of companies. So then you're just looking at, you know, 25 or 30 B plus market caps, right? Um, which basically means that your universe of securities you can you can you know buy is just very limited. And so it becomes a little. And I'm not saying that actually. It turns out that a lot of the best and the returns the reason well, well, well the reason for that is you can't at a 10 billion dollar fund you you need to. You need to have a big enough. You need to write a big enough check on each one, and just given how big the team is, right? Otherwise, it's just too much work in terms of looking at like mid caps or small caps. Well, also, I, I think yeah, and it's similar in PE. It's no different than at a mega fund. Like right. you don't want to like if, if your if your pitch is that we're a fund that you know does fundamental deep fundamental research and we have right. you know differentiated views on business quality than the market. Like if you try to you can't do that and pick fifty companies. Like it's just right. impossible. Yeah. To be successful, your hit rate will never—it'll never work. So, you know, the right way to do it is to have you know ten or fifteen positions or or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and and do it that way. And so that means that then your just investable universe is that much smaller when you're a massive fund. So, but yeah. when you you know when you're running five hundred million or or a B, um, mm-hmm. you know you have a lot more in, in terms of your ability to uh, you know look at the, you know wider swath of of companies, for sure. um, which I think is a little personally for me a little more interesting. And it's no different. In P, if you're at a mega fund versus a you know yeah. a, a more minimal market, uh, fund. market yeah. fund, yeah, no, for sure. There's just a lot more out there if you're a smaller fund and you don't have to write as big a checks, put as much money to work. Exactly. So yeah, so tell me a little bit about yeah the the so it sounds like you know it was very successful, grew quickly. Um, it's kind of exciting for you. It surprised me you wouldn't kind of stay on and maybe get more carry and um, you know kind of grow with that firm, I guess maybe you felt like just there, you were itching to do something else. I'd love to just hear that thought process. Yeah, I always, I mean, my thought process was always like, uh, you know, I was, I'd always liked investing and it was always something I wanted to do. And so I, I always felt that, you know, I should be enjoying kind of going to the office every day and kind of, you know, doing my, my research and, and the work I was you know supposed to do. And I think at, at some point kind of after being here for a bit, it, you know, the fund got a little more institutionalized as it, as it should, as it grew. And I just, you know, was enjoying uh, the investing process less. Yeah. And so I felt that given that I wasn't having as much fun and given that I, you know, it is a space that I, I, I like and care a lot about that I should just kind of change it up. And so I didn't really know, frankly, what I, what I wanted to do after, but I just felt that it made sense to um, kind of leave and, and to, I basically traveled for around five months. Where'd you go? Or uh, you know, kind of just, I went to, I, I was lucky. I went to a lot of good places. I went to the Amazon. I was in like Morocco. So cool. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hopped around. Did you take a um, boat down the river, down the Amazon? I actually, so I, we drove one way and I was lucky enough to actually take a seaplane one way, which is, is oh, for cool. anyone who ever goes to the Amazon, it's, that's really, really cool. Um, actually, one of the the largest freshwater archipelago in the world is actually in, in, in the Amazon. So it's really yeah. cool to but uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty sweet. I would recommend it if uh, anyone ever gets down there. Great. So you you know you decided, hey, I'm going to hit pause. I need to just kind of figure out what I want to do next. You weren't enjoying the investing process as much. Makes sense. You had a smaller universe to look at. It was more institutionalized, larger fund. You said, you know, maybe I just need to 
step back for a bit, take a breather. You'd been, you know, in banking and, you know, hedge funds for a good four years at that point or longer if you can count your, if you count your internship. And so totally makes sense. You hit pause, you say, okay, you do some traveling and then, then what kind of what, what brings you to Adam Finance? Or what kind of made you think? So of I it? actually read. Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny. It actually wasn't the, the initial conception idea. It, it wasn't mine. I actually reconnected with uh, a very good friend of mine from Penn, mm-hmm. um, who has been involved in, in several startups and and kind of is actually pretty active as an angel investor. And the original idea was he older? Was he older? He, no, he's actually so he's actually my year. He's in the in the Huntsman program with me as well, and we actually roomed together. And he's um, an angel investor. He's already an angel investor, so he's done well for himself. Yeah, he has. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he writes some small uh, angel checks and, and kind of uh, with some um, funds from his family has been pretty active as a as an angel and then cool. also actually helped. He went through Y Combinator and, and helped start a few companies as well. So he um, he actually got the the idea from our what turned out to be our first investor, who was basically. Um, pretty also very active uh, early stage investor, and he basically had worked at Microsoft and. <laughs> had looked at uh, Yahoo at the time and was basically like, um, you know, had the, had the idea that Yahoo Finance was just a really, I mean, it's obvious, this is a really bad product. Yep. And so his, you know, his, his thesis was that there's a large white space between that product and, you know, institutional grade, uh, Bloomberg, CapIQ, Sentio, AlphaSense, all these products that cost you know, thousands of dollars a year. And so he basically felt that we should build uh, a competitor product for the mass market. And so mm-hmm. that's how the original idea was born. And actually, my, uh, my friend uh, basically built a early stage prototype of the product um, with a few contract engineers, but shelved it. This is kind of mid 2018, because he basically didn't have anyone to work on it with. And when we reconnected, he actually moved back to New York, this is like in August of 2018. Yep. He suggested the idea to me. And obviously, since I'm a finance junkie, it was uh, pretty good fit. So it's something I started to become uh, kind of obsessed with over the next few months and then decided at the towards the end of 2018 to actually turn it into, you know, kind of a business and just go for it and then really build out, build out the product, build out the team um, and kind of go for it. So we basically hired a few more contract engineers in mm-hmm. uh, November and December of 2018 to yeah, turn the prototype into you know, kind of a more towards a more finished product. And then we raised a uh, $2 million seed round in January of this year and basically took the, the time period from the beginning of this year till about five weeks ago now or maybe six weeks ago now um, to turn the, the prototype into a, a live uh, a live product and integrate with our data providers and you know make make the user experience much better so we did that um, and yeah we released the, fi- the the product five weeks ago or so now Mm-hmm. Um, we're almost at getting close to 30,000 users actually on the platform, which is very exciting. And, That's crazy. And kind of, I think, That's a great start. You know, justifies our, uh, gives us further conviction in the thesis that, you know, there's a real opportunity here to build a much better product for folks that haven't had, uh, you know, great and, and powerful software platform like this before. So, yeah, now we're. Uh, is your idea is your idea around monetization? Is there any sort of monetization idea like going going in right now, or has has that kind of like, hey, we'll just get the audience first, and then it's whatever kind of makes sense at the time? Is it kind of you're going to just or yeah, is there a I whole think, plan? No, so right now the product uh, the product is free. I mean, my, so my view on on and and I'm obviously a first time founder, so I'm not 
speaking with authority here, but but your partner is isn't. Your partner isn't. He's definitely more experienced. But I think you know, if you talk to good founders, I, I think they'll also say, and especially this is especially true for uh, you know a software, a continuous consumption software product where there isn't um, obviously physical cost of goods sold. You know, the mm-hmm. goal is to just build a really awesome, super engaging, you know, software product that delights users. And I think if you make it very obvious to users that you're adding a ton of value to their life and that you're making a great product that they really, you know, that really delights them. I think monetization isn't an issue in a space where people have a lot of money and the information has real impact on, on their, you know, dollars. And so our goal is, Hey, let's just build a great, great product mm-hmm. and make people really happy and make it really powerful. And I think if we do that over time, yeah, ultimately we're going to likely have different pricing tiers and, and there'll be premium features. Maybe we charge right. for at some point, but I think first and foremost, you know, our mission is to, no, yeah, it's still product. super early. Yeah, it's still super and, early for you guys. You're, yeah, exactly. you, get, you get the seed round done, and so you have some runway there. And then, any ideas when you're going to go get, you know, raise your next round? Do you think in another year or so? Uh, well, actually, we are pretty close to closing our series. A oh, right now, you are actually. okay, great, yeah. awesome. So, it's, uh, so the team is growing pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, the you know we we'll, we'll see, but um, we uh, we'll, we'll, we may be announcing something in, in the not not too distant future, but um. Yeah, it's it's exciting. You know, we're looking to you know further further grow the team um, and you know expand the product offering and, and to really you know just get get more folks on the platform. Great. Well, we'll we'll put a link to it. It's Adam dot finance. Is that right? A T O M. Yeah, that's right. Finance. Yep. And then yeah, it's Adam. Yep. Go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. So it's uh, the the platform is uh, you know you can access it at Adam A T O M dot finance and the you actually need an invite code to get in, so you can use the code beta VIP, B E T A V I P, one word. Cool. Um, and yeah, I think. Great. And so before, before we uh, end the pod, anything else you'd like to share? Like any advice you would have given to your younger self, you know, whether it's the banking restructuring group or not, going to a hedge fund, anything you'd like to share that you would have kind of told your younger self? I think, uh, you know, one of, one of the things I think you learn, and this is just like as you work at different places, you know, a lot of the, the decisions that you think are super important or the metrics you're thinking about using to make them are often incorrect. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of times you'll just be focused on brand prestige or whatever. And then what it turns out is actually you should have been focusing more on the people you're working with or what the actual job function is um, or, you know, how that like impacts your, your lifestyle. And so I, I think that that's definitely one thing I think, you know, people and it's hard when you're you know, before you actually work somewhere, people have, you know, a framework for making career decisions and they think they're using the right inputs to make those decisions and evaluate what is important. And generally, a lot of times those are not the actual, um, you know, correct inputs to be making a decision. So what I would say is a very good practice is to ask older folks who've kind of been through it and worked a lot of these places and, and to kind of talk to them how, how you, you know, potentially you should be thinking about making that decision because I think it could really help, you know, if, you're, if you have the wrong, you know, inputs into your decision-making process, and a lot of times you, you'll end up with a flawed decision. So I think that's one thing. And then I think the other thing is that a lot of times the, the things in, like that happen that, uh, you know, seem to be negatives or, you know, seem to be like risky things in your career end up being really good things. Like when I when I left Blackstone, uh, you know, obviously everyone in the, I was one of the first people to leave before two years, like everyone there was really unhappy at me and, and pissed. And, you know, ultimately it was like the right decision. So sometimes you just have to make the decisions that you think, uh, you know, make sense. And, and a lot of times they end up being, you know, what seems to be a potential negative ends up being a positive for your career. So 
Yeah, for, a long, for someone so uh, young, it was pretty. It was, it was a pretty bold move, to be honest. For someone so young coming out of school, ten months in, to say goodbye to Blackstone and go start, go to start a hedge fund. It's pretty bold, but um, tip my cap to you. It looks like it worked out, and you're on your way yeah. on a, with another with a startup now. It's exciting. So, congrats to all your all your success. Oh, I appreciate it. it was very very good chatting. Uh, awesome. Hope it was uh, somewhat helpful. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Thanks, man. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at WallStreetOasis.com. Until next time.